So one of the things we talk a lot about here is that God's love is one way. God's love is descending one-way love. It, it comes to us minus our merit. We don't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to deserve it. In fact, we are very ill-deserving of God's affection, God's approval, God's acceptance. God's love is one way. His rescue is unilateral. We don't bring anything to the table of God's loving us, but our badness and our brokenness. And we talk about that regularly because the Bible talks about that, because that's what God says to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were at our worst, God gave us his best. And so the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel is that God's love is one way, coming to people like you and me minus our merit. And for most of us, that is a word of great relief. It is for me. It's a word of great relief that I can't earn God's love, that I don't deserve God's love, because what it means is that the pressure is off to save ourselves, to become something that we can never be, to perform for our reward, to make sure we finish our vegetables before we get dessert. It's the way the world operates. It's very conditional. We have to perform well in order to get a bonus. We have to do certain things in order to garner the affection and the approval of other people. Well, God's, God's unconditional framework is paradigm shifting for conditional people like you and me. His love, is, his love is one way. And for most of us, that is a huge relief. To know that God rescues me single-handedly frees me from having to rescue myself through my relationships, through my various activities, through all of my pursuits, through my dreams and all of those things. I don't need to rescue myself any longer because God's rescue of sinners like me is single-handed, is unilateral, is one way. And that's a huge relief. But, okay, Paul in these verses pushes the irrational logic of God's grace to an uncomfortable level. I mean, he really sort of pushes the envelope here. We're, we're fine and we're happy saying things like God's love is one way and he rescues us so that we don't have to rescue ourselves and we don't deserve anything that God gives us. He gives us his love. He gives us his affection. He grants us approval. He justifies us unilaterally. I mean, that sets us free. But then Paul begins to push the envelope here and he shows, he pushes the irrational logic of God's radical grace to some pretty uncomfortable places. He says, listen, if it's true that you did nothing to get God's love, then there's, it's also true that there's nothing you can do to lose God's love. If that is true, let me tell you exactly what that means. I mean, if you go back to Romans 8.30 that we looked at last week, um, I mean, when he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We revel in that verse. We go, thank God that my rescue from slavery, my being set free by God, is done by God from beginning to end. We revel in that. And then we get to verses like we find here in Romans chapter 9, and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. I mean, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter next week. 
some of my favorite verses in the Bible. But we get to this section and we're like, well, hold on a second. I mean, um, there is something seemingly unjust, seemingly unfair, seemingly too radical about God's grace. Paul, you may need to put the brakes on here. I mean, we love Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. God's rescue of us is from beginning to end. There's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from God's love. We're locked in a cage of God's righteousness. We're slaves to righteousness. We are clothed in an irremovable suit of God's forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to outsend the coverage of God's forgiveness. We love that. But then Paul sort of unpacks it and shows us some of the, agree- the ingredients. He kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look, an eternal look, really, from God's standpoint, from God's perspective, as to what the radicality of his grace really means. And he begins this section here in verse 1 down through verse 5. He begins this section by voicing great sorrow because his own family... You know, Paul is a Jew, he's an Israelite, and he's, he's voicing great anguish and great sorrow because many Israelites and many Jews in that day did not recognize Jesus as the one sent from God, the one promised in the Old Testament to rescue us from slavery. And so they were rejecting God's grace, they were rejecting who Jesus was. In fact, many of the religious leaders were the ones calling for Jesus' head, And so Paul goes, I am in great anguish, filled with sorrow, filled with grief. In fact, he goes on to say that if I could cut myself off from Jesus so that they would understand and know and embrace God's love and God's grace, I'd do it. I'd do it. That's how badly I want them to know Jesus. That's how I I would cut myself off. I I would suffer eternal damnation, he says. I would would wish myself to be accursed if that was something that would get them to believe and get them to embrace and get them to know the freeing power of God's love. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, have you ever felt like that with one of your children, with someone in your family, with a friend, your husband, your wife? You've been set free by God's grace God has loved you one way and the burden is off and you've been raised from death to life. Your eyes have been opened. You're finally living and not just existing. And there are people around you, people that you really know and love who go, are you nuts? Have you joined a cult? I mean, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, what's happened to you? You kind of used to be cool and now you've gotten strange, you've gotten weird and they just don't get it. You know, I mean, it's like God opened your eyes and their eyes are still closed and they just don't get it. And you find yourself praying and saying, God, I mean, do something. Hound of heaven, please track them down. Magnificently defeat them. Wrestle them. I mean, I don't know a parent who has been rescued by God's love and grace that hasn't prayed that for their children. And those prayers intensify as your children become teenagers. God, I'm, please, please. I mean, do, last year when we were having our difficult year with Gabe, who is just 
crushing it right now at school. Thank God. I mean, just crushing it. He's amazing. He sent me a video yesterday of him jumping off a 30-foot cliff into some river. Um, he's crushing it. I mean, he's, uh, you, there's nothing. You, where's Lori? You know how this feels. There's nothing like when a prodigal comes home. Nothing. My mom knows that too. I mean, there is, there is no feeling like when a prodigal comes home. Nothing for a parent. Nothing. And you find yourself just begging God for mercy on the ones that you love. Well, this is, this is what Paul is saying here. He's like, I, I am, I mean, he really, really voices anguish, sorrow. And then he goes on to say, I just, I don't completely get it because God gave them so much. I mean, look at all the benefits that God, that God gave them. Um, this is in verse 4 and 5. They are so privileged. God gave them so much, more than he gave anyone else. I mean, they're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption. I mean, you go back to the Old Testament, and out of all the nations in the world, God chose them. In fact, God birthed them. He chose Abraham and said, through you, I'm choosing you. I'm coming to you. And through you... I am going to birth an entire nation for myself. And I'm going to give them gifts like I don't give to any other nation. And so what does he do? He gives them spokespeople, prophets, people who come from God and speak to them. No other nation had that. He gives them his law. He shows them who he is. He reveals himself to them. He gives them gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. He goes on to say, not only to them belong the adoption, the glory, seeing God, knowing God, uh, being, being on the receiving end of God's special attention, the covenants, the promises, God making promises that I will save sinners, I will rescue you. I mean, all of these remarkable things that God gave them that he didn't give to anyone else, they're so privileged, Paul says. God gave them so much. He gave them more than he gave to anyone else. What is their problem? I wish so bad that they would know what I know, that they themselves would have a Damascus Road type experience where their eyes would be opened, where they would see Jesus in a brand new, fresh way for the first time. And understand that he is the savior of sinners, the one that God promised all through the prophets, through the law, the one that God promised would one day come and rescue people like you and me. He says, I wish so bad that they would, that they would know that. And they don't. And Paul is in anguish like many of us are when it comes to the people that we know and the people that we love. And so it kind of begs a question. And Paul addresses this in the following verses. It kind of begs a question. If God gave them so much and they rejected all of his gifts, has God failed? I mean, has God failed? Has, has his word of promise failed? Has God's, have God's covenants, his promises, his contract, his contract with sinners, has that failed? Is God incapable I mean, what's going on here? I don't get it. God gave them so much. They've rejected what God gave them. Is God incapable? Is he weak? I mean, what, what's going on? And Paul spends the next, gosh, 
couple chapters defending God, defending God and his ways, showing that God, God makes good on all of his promises, that you can't simply look at rejectors as a way to put a blemish on God's record. See, God can't do it. God can't do it. In fact, what he goes on to say here um, is that God has fulfilled his promise and that um, God's word has failed only if we judge God's success based on our own view of success. And we do that, you know? We have in our own mind, we have developed over time what success is, what success looks like. It's terribly Americanized. But we've developed in our own mind what success looks like, what success is. We, we value whether we realize it or not, and we've adopted whether we realize it or not, what the world has told us success is and what it looks like. And so we, we can only conclude that God has failed if we judge success, God's success, based on our own view of success. I mean, to us, Success is beauty, it's competency, it's deservedness, it's strength, it's victory. A successful person is one who is clean and good and smart and influential. In fact, we spend most of our lives seeking success by trying to become all these things in one way, shape, or form. Success is someone with a good reputation, so we better, we better get things right and develop a good reputation. Success is someone who is looked on favorably by other people. So let's be as nice and as compliant and as sacrificing as possible so that people will like us because when people like us, we feel like we matter. Success is being beautiful. Success is making money. Success is raising children who cross their T's and dot their I's and stay away from sex and drugs. That's success. And if we can do that, if we can accomplish that kind of victory, if we can do everything right to ensure that kind of outcome, we will be a success. Well, if that's our definition of success, then we look at so many of the things that God has done, is doing, and will do, and say, you failed. Because Jesus himself is remarkably unsuccessful according to those terms. I mean, he's the creator of all. The king of kings, the one who literally spoke the world into existence. And he comes not in some glorious fashion. He comes and he's born, not even, not even in a hotel. I mean, it's bad enough giving birth in a motel. Okay? Not even in a, not even in a motel or a hotel. You know the difference between those two things, by the way? Have you ever, I mean, literally, you know the difference? I've, I figured, because I, I never really knew the difference until a couple years ago, okay? A hotel, this is, just, this is just for you. This is just facts for you so that you can be smarter when you leave and you can tell people. A hotel, this has nothing to do with the sermon at all, okay? Not nothing. Um, a hotel is the, is, the, uh, is the kind of place where you have to walk inside and your rooms are on the inside of the building because... The people there are hosting you, hotel, okay? A motel is the kind of place where you pull your car up and the door's on the outside. It's mobile, all right? Does that make sense? Has anyone ever heard that before? No? Just, you can find anything you want on Google. What's the difference between hotel and motel? 
It's unbelievable. Um, anyway, he wasn't even born in a motel, in a stable, okay, amongst animals. And who did God show up to first to say, the king has come? The one that was promised a long time ago is finally here. He's arrived. Who did he go to? Did he go to the kings, the religious leaders? Did he go to the synagogues and the churches? Did he go to the people of power, the successful people, the beautiful people? No, he shows up on a mountainside where there are shepherds, blue-collar, smelly outcasts. That's who he shows up to. And then you look at the life of Jesus. I mean, just look at his life. Who was attracted to him? I mean, was it the power brokers? Was it the cultural influencers? I mean, it was the rejects, the cripples, the lame people, blind people, prostitutes, social outcasts like tax collectors. I mean, it was those kinds of people that were drawn to him. In fact, it was the power brokers and the religious people and the cultural influencers who hated him. He was disrupting their groove, and they hated him for it. So just the life and ministry, and as we'll see shortly, the death of Jesus shows us that God's paradigm of success is antithetical to our paradigm. The way we think about success and the way God thinks about success is remarkably different. In fact, the way God thinks about success turns our understanding of success and everything that makes sense completely upside down. So um, we believe that success in the ways that we've adopted will make life fulfilling. We'll find happiness and peace and security and freedom if we can just become successful. I'm I'm not just talking about becoming rich. Success is defined by all of us. You know, maybe, maybe if you woke up healthy today, that's success. You know, maybe, maybe if your son or daughter finally called after not calling you for six months, that's success. Maybe if your son or daughter finally made a right decision, that's success. Whatever the case may be. Um, you know, we, when we define success in those ways and we locate or seek our happiness, our fulfillment, our meaning, our value, our worth down those avenues of success, then we can look at everything God does and go, he's failed. God God clearly doesn't get it. He doesn't get how things work. He doesn't get what's impressive. We understand what's impressive. God doesn't understand what's impressive, but God works from the bottom. Martin Luther said that uh, there are two kinds of theologians. First of all, everyone's a theologian. You've heard me say this before. Everyone's a theologian. You may not think of yourself as a theologian, but you are one. You are. You might think that theologians are just ivory tower scholars who split hairs over things that don't really matter and don't really touch ground in real life. But the fact of the matter is you're a theologian. The word theology simply means God talk or God words. Theos is God. Logos is Greek for word. It's just God talk, God words, which means that um, whatever you think about God, even if you think there is no God, You are, if you say there is no God, you're making a theological statement. It's a bad one, but you're making a theological statement. If you say, I don't know if there's a God, I'm agnostic. 
You're making a theological statement. Everyone's a theologian. The question is simply whether or not you're a good one or a bad one. It's not whether you are one. And so um, Martin Luther said that there are two kinds of theologians in this world. Every human being uh, can be, can be um, divided into one of two groups. Either you're a theologian of glory or you're a theologian of the cross. That's what he said. A theologian of glory is one who defines, and not, God, not God's glory, our glory, is one who defines success in terms of winning and power and victory and beauty and accomplishment. They, they, see, they see success as being at the top in whatever shape or form. A theologian of the cross, on the other hand, according to Luther, was someone who understood that success is really at the bottom, that it's in defeat, not victory. It's in loss, not winning, that it's in weakness, not strength, that God dwells. God is, as I'm going to say a little bit later, God is a bottom dweller. You know, bottom dwelling fish, they just kind of skate along the bottom of the gross stuff and they eat stuff that's gross and they take on a stench that's gross. You don't want to catch a bottom-dwelling fish because it smells. You definitely don't want to eat a bottom-dwelling fish. I mean, that's just gross. God is a bottom-dweller. And Jesus is proof that God is a bottom-dweller. Taking on human flesh, the God of the universe, taking on human flesh and frailty. Talk about coming to the bottom. I mean, that's where God dwells. That's a theologian of the cross, someone who understands that God is a bottom dweller. He's, he's not at the top of a ladder shouting down, climb, strong ones. He's at the bottom whispering with his arm around us, it is finished. He's a bottom dweller. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for us to ascend to him. He descends to us. That's a theologian of the cross, one who understands God in that way, one who understands that that's the way God works, one who understands that God works from the bottom, or as Luther said, God works from the opposite. Because in God's economy, the last is first. In God's economy, the least is the greatest. And that just doesn't make sense to us. You find, where else... In all the world, will you hear that success is being at the bottom? Where else will you hear that, you know, the last place is better than first place? The bottom is better than the top. The least is the greatest. You won't hear it anywhere because that's not the way we operate. It's not the way our world operates. It's otherworldly comes from above. It comes from God. And Paul shows this, how God works from the opposite, by showing how God doesn't play by our rules. He just doesn't play by our rules. That's what this whole passage is about. God obstinately refuses to play by our rules for our sake. He's, he, he stubbornly refuses to play by our rules. Thank God. 
His definition of success is very different than ours. And as we make our way through these verses, what you discover is it's offensive. It offends everything that makes sense to us. It offends everything that makes natural sense to us. It's offensive. We revel in the economy of God. We we revel in God's ways. We sing about God's ways. We embrace God's ways. But when God really pulls the curtain back and shows us how deep his ways go, how sovereign his grace really is, how in control of his promiscuous distribution of love he really is, it starts to get a little uncomfortable and we start to squirm in our seats. And he gives three examples here in these passages of how God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He he uses three examples, three Old Testament examples. He says, first, um, Isaac is chosen over Ishmael. You know, Isaac and Ishmael share a father, um, Abraham, and Ishmael is the firstborn. You know the story. God says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham gets old. Lots of time has passed. Sarah is barren. They can't have kids anymore. Abraham goes, maybe I heard God wrong. Maybe I should take matters into my own hands. Maybe what God really intended was that I take matters into my own hands. So let me take matters into my own hands. I've got a plan. I will go to my handmaiden, Sarah's handmaiden, his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, because she's young and she can bear children. I'll sleep with her. She'll get pregnant and that will be the fulfillment of God's promise. Ishmael's the firstborn. God, of course, says that wasn't my plan. Just wait. I make good on all my promises and lo and behold, Sarah gets pregnant, and Isaac's born, okay? And what we find here is that God, God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael, and by the rules of genealogy back in those days, Ishmael should have been the choice. He's the oldest. You know, he's the first. He's the oldest. And yet God chooses Isaac. And then he goes on to say, Jacob is chosen over Esau. I love this one, you know? I mean, not only like Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau are brothers, but they're even closer. They don't share just one parent. They share both parents. And even beyond that, they're twins. Okay, I mean, they are, they're twins. And Esau comes first. And so by the rules of genealogy and the social etiquette of that day and the way things naturally work, Esau was the one. He was the chosen one. He was the one that was going to get all the stuff. He was going to get the inheritance. He was going to take over the family. All that kind of stuff, you know? I mean, it's like Dom Corleone choosing Michael over Fredo. Very similar. You guys Godfather fans? Good. One person. That's got to change. Big time. After the Bible and Rocky, all of the life lessons I've learned have come from the Godfather movies, all right? Um, But, I mean, here we see God choosing, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's making choices that are offensive, that don't make sense socially. They just, just doesn't make sense. And beyond that, 
I mean, while both Jacob and Esau are, are kind of scoundrels, I mean, Jacob's way worse. I mean, his very name means deceiver. Okay? I mean, you can make the case that Jacob, at least externally, is worse than Esau. I mean, Esau's a man's man. He's hairy. He's red. You know? He's a man's man. He hunts. He kills. He fights. You know? He's a man's man. Perfect. Perfect. Um, he would have been perfect to be sort of the head of the family. Jacob's a complete mama's boy, you know? He's in the kitchen, he's cleaning, he's cooking, he's, you know, wiping things down and painting his nails and, and all of that stuff, you know? And what does God do? He takes the sissy, the deceiver, and chooses him. And he, Paul gives that example. He's building a case to show that God's choices make no sense. No sense. Remember when Israel wanted a king? They were desperately wanting a king so that they could be like all of the other nations. And, I mean, who do they want? Saul. Why? He was a head taller than everybody else. He just looked like a king, man. I mean, he's just strong. He just, I mean, he was the, he was the poster child of success and strength. And... Um, who was God's choice? David, you know, the shepherd. God's always making really, really weird choices. He's making decisions that are strange, that don't make sense to us. Um, I mean, God completely, in the case of Jacob and Esau, he completely ignores social status by passing over the older brother again in favor of the younger one. And then if you skip down to verse 11, Paul says that God made that choice before Jacob and Esau are even born, making it impossible to say that God is choosing one over the other based on some form of deservedness. It's a super important verse. It's Paul's getting ready to drive something home, okay? He says, look, before, before those twins were even born, I made my choice. Just so that you would know that there is nothing in Jacob at all that warrants my selection. Nothing. As is the case with you and me. There is nothing in us that warrants God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. His grace is sovereign. It's invasive. His love is mugging in nature. He is, as Francis Thompson said, the hound of heaven who tracks down runners to defeat us magnificently. He comes to people like Saul on the road to Damascus, who eventually became the Apostle Paul. He was on his way to throw Christians in jail. And who shows up? He wasn't looking for God. I mean, he just, he was on his way. He, he thought that followers of Jesus were heretics because Jesus was a false prophet. He actually thought he was doing God a favor by throwing Christians in prison. God shows up. 
literally knocks him off his horse. God shows up. He wasn't looking for God. Remember C.S. Lewis's remarkable testimony where he says, you know, modern man, he, he gives his testimony about how God just showed up. You know, God just showed up. He was an atheist and God just showed up. You know, just boom, defeated him, opened his eyes, softened his heart, helped him to see. And C.S. Lewis, in reflecting on that experience, says modern man loves to talk about man's search for God. That's about as asinine as talking about a mouse's search for the cat. It's a beautiful way of putting it. We're not looking for God. We, what, what do we see in Romans 3? No one seeks after God. No one's looking for God. We look for the things that only God can give us. Meaning, happiness, contentment, satisfaction, love. We look for things that only God can give us, but we're not looking to God or seeking God to find those things. We're trying to find those things in lots of other places, but not God. Paul says no one seeks for God. God is the seeker. We are the sought. And that's what Paul wants to drive home in these verses. He wants to show that our rescue is uncomfortably unilateral. And our rescue was a decision God made long before you were born. For some of us, it happened at a young age. For some of us, it happened, you know, in your 20s, maybe your 30s, 40s. For some, maybe in their 50s. For some, it has not yet happened. The very fact that you're hearing this right now may be an indication that the hound of heaven is after you this moment. He's coming. Now. After you. And so, um, Paul wants us to know this is unilateral, it's deep, it's profound, it's sovereign. Um, and so, he says, um, I mean, he's really, Paul really is trying to offend us. <laughs> trying to offend us into freedom. Sometimes it takes being offended, rocked, in order to be free. Sometimes it takes having our legs broken in order for us to be able to run. And so Paul is trying to offend the reader. He's saying about Jacob and Esau, there is nothing in the human, pro or con, that explains God's choice. The only reason for my choice of you is not you. It's my mercy, he says. And then he goes on to say that Moses is chosen over Pharaoh to show that God values his mercy over human will or exertion, over power, in other words. Wouldn't it have been more strategic for God to choose Pharaoh? I mean, look at, he was like in control of the entire then known world. You know? I mean, it's like when Constantine, emperor of Rome, became a Christian. Now, that was a smart move of God, because he could influence the whole world, you know? It's like, you know, when God saves someone who's famous, now that's smart, because famous people have a platform, and people listen to famous people, and so when God, when God saves, you know, uh, athletes, after they, when they're interviewed after a game, and they say, I just want to thank God, the next thing you know, Christian people have them on a speaking circuit coming to their church. I, Tim Tebow is omnipresent. 
It's like he was in LA at eight and he's in Jakarta at 10. I'm like, how? This guy, it's unbelievable. And I, I don't know him, I love him, amazing, awesome testimony. It's the impulse of the Christian community that goes, now that will, that will preach. Why? Because he's 6'4". He's a beast. He looks like Thor. He played football. He won the Heisman Trophy. People will listen to him. God forbid you put a former homeless person or a janitor who has been radically saved by God's grace, because that doesn't impress anybody. You know, but you, you put Tebow up there. Tim, if you're listening, I love you. But you put Tebow up there. Um, and I mean, people will listen. You see, that's our impulse. You see how even that in and of itself shows, reveals our theology of glory rather than our theology of the cross. And so I go, you know, Moses is chosen over Pharaoh. I'm thinking, God, Pharaoh would have been a better choice. You rock Pharaoh's world and have mercy on him and open his eyes and give him your love and I mean, that guy, he can speak to the world. Moses? I mean, Moses admits to God before the burning bush, I'm not even good with words. I don't even know how to speak eloquently. Why me? God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Why? Because then when... When success happens, according to God's economy, who gets all the glory? He does. We don't, you know? I mean, every single one of us are tokens of God's amazing grace. When people look at me, okay, they go, there, there's got to be a God. <laughs> I mean, I remember at 21 years old, crashing and burning, and um, I had lived, as you know, like a complete, total, utter wild man. And I remember crashing and burning. And I remember talking to my dad one night over dinner. And I just said, I have no idea what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. But I have got to spend my life telling anyone who will listen about this God who came after me. Because if God can save me, he can save anyone. And so I, um, we look at God's ways. We see what he's up to. God does strange things. He makes strange choices, choices that are very different than the ones we would make. And all of these examples that Paul gives here are intolerable for people desperate to find something to hang our hats on as a basis for God loving us. You know, I mean, of course God chooses to love us. After all, aren't we good-hearted? Aren't we smart? Aren't we athletic, attractive? Something. There's got to be something in me that has warranted God's attention and made him go, I'll take that one. I'm going after that one. Look at him. Look at her. She's beautiful. <laughs> she speaks well. You know, look at him. He's successful. He's ambitious. I could use someone with some ambition on my team. He doesn't do that. Um, and as a result, it's, it's offensive. The Jacob Esau choice is the worst one because one can't even say that 
You can't even say that one has a better jawline or hair color than the other. They're twins, okay? Um, and we just have a huge problem with this. The doctrine of election has been the source of so much consternation, argumentation, and division for hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years. And most people say, we don't like it because it's not fair. I mean, who does God think he is? God? That he can just do whatever he wants, whenever he wants? He, I mean, who does he think he is? It's just to make one choice over another is simply unjust. It's not fair. The real problem, however, is not that we love others. That's not fair. If, if, if the real problem was it's not fair, we might say what's driving that, what's driving that posture is because we love others. That's not the real problem. Our real problem is not that we love others by saying that's not fair. Our real problem is that we love ourselves. Our real problem is that we want to be in control. Free will. We love it. You know? Free will. Free will. Free will. How much free will did Saul have on the road to Damascus? Abraham's sitting in the sun in Ur. And God just boom, shows up. You know? I mean... You show me one example in the Bible of a person God rescues who chose God. There's none. And that rubs us the wrong way because we don't want God to be that much of a God. We're still, we will, we will give you 95% of the glory. But we want five. And we hang it on this philosophical, theological hanger that we call free will. You are so not free. Okay, I mean, there's a difference between free will and the capacity to make choices. And we confuse those two. And so what we do is we think that because we have this capacity to make choices, that means we have free will. And then we define free will is our ability to choose anything and everything from any of the options that are put before us. Really? So climb to the top of the steeple after the service and choose to fly and see what happens. One of the illustrations that I give when talking about free will is um, if you... If you put... A, 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 a lion is a carnivore, okay? Eats meat. And if you put in front of a lion, that, that's his nature, okay? If you put in front of a lion a pile of meat on the left-hand side and a pile of vegetables on the right-hand side, 10 times out of 10, because he is carnivorous by nature, 10 times out of 10, the lion will freely choose the meat over the vegetables. 10 times out of 10. Why? Because nature, write this down. This is, this is worth showing up this morning. Nature dictates desire. Desire dictates choice. So if we are sinful by nature, 
We will desire sin. We will choose sin freely. In fact, your greatest enemy and mine is our freedom to make choices. Because we're choosing the wrong thing all the time. And so we hang our hats on this sort of mistaken notion of free will. I'm not saying you don't, you don't make choices. You're not robots. Okay? I'm not saying that. You know. You make, choice, you make choices every day. So do I. Um, I'm saying when it comes to choosing God, you're dead unless God makes you alive. God's not some physician who walks into your hospital room while you've got oxygen on your face and offers you a wake-up pill that you have to just grab with your, you know, I'm offering it to you, you but you got to grab it. <laughs> you got to grab it, and here's a little cup of water, and you can... He comes into a morgue where you and I are dead. We don't need... We don't need a pill, a wake-up pill. We need resurrection. Dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2. In Colossians 3, dead in our trespasses. Dead, 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 dead. Therefore, what you need is someone on the outside to make you alive. And God does that. We don't do that. Dead people can't choose jack Squat. <laughs> Any Chris Farley fans out there? Okay, good. Um, Godfather Chris, you know, I'm a sort of a pop culture junkie. Um, but I mean, he, what, what can dead people choose? Literally. Um, so this starts to get uncomfortable. Now, I. Um, I want to be able to say that I know God because I chose him, that I had something to do with God loving me. Now listen to me. I'm totally fine with saying, you chose God. I chose God. Totally fine with that. I'm totally fine with saying, I chose God and God chose me. A both and kind of guy, you know? But that doesn't really get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue really is whose choice was the causing choice. Did God choose me because I chose him? Or did I choose God because he chose me? What, if you back up all the choices, back, 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 all the way to eternity past, who started it? What was the first choice made? Was it mine? And my choice was so good? and so smart and better than yours that he said, good choice, I'll choose you. That's conditional love. And who ends up getting the glory? We do. Look how good we are. God chose me. Why? Because I was smarter than my neighbor George, who God clearly hates. Okay? Um... I don't have a neighbor, George, I don't think. I used to, and that's who I was thinking about. Um, um, <laughs> so I'm totally fine with saying I chose God. 21 years old, First Baptist Church, Fort Lauderdale. I just, I heard the gospel, my eyes were open. 
I was in a bad place. And I chose God. But according to Paul, both here and back in Romans 8.30, that choice was predestined before the foundation of the world. And God did it all. Did it all. You want your rescue to be in your hands? <laughs> I don't. I'm grateful that the hound of heaven comes after people like me against my will. Against my will. Because my will has done nothing but get me in trouble for 41 years. Nothing. Um, so this is what I mean when I say Paul pushes the irrational logic of God's grace to an uncomfortable level. God saves all the way. Start to finish. And if you go back to the fairness objection, okay, the fairness objection also falls flat because do we really want God to be fair? Do we really want God to be fair? You know what? You know what would be fair? You don't want God's fairness. Trust me. You know, one of the things that I typically say is God doesn't do something because it is just, as if there is this external standard of justice outside of God that God has decided since he's good, he's going to subject himself to. I want to be just. Here's the definition of justice, therefore I'm going to do what's right. God, God doesn't do something because it is just. Something is just because God does it. He sets the standard. It is by definition just if it comes from God. And, um, and I, I our, listen, our only hope is God's unfairness. It's our only hope. If God were to be fair, we'd all be in the soup. We'd all be in big trouble. He's not fair. He's merciful. He's gracious. He doesn't give us what we deserve, and he freely gives us what we don't deserve. That's good news. He doesn't give us what we deserve, and he freely gives us what we don't deserve. What makes the gospel offensive, listen, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it leaves out. What makes the gospel offensive is who it lets in. You. Me. That's what's offensive. Him, her. Okay, that's what's offensive about it. It's not, you know, get over it. Let God be God. Let him, let him do what he does because he's always done it well. So don't start fair, just, not right. You're under, you're, you're understanding, my understanding of fairness is fallen and broken anyway. Whatever we think fair is, is an imperfect understanding of fairness. Okay, so, I mean, get that out of your mind. I mean, that's just, let God do what God does. Don't start, you know, God, God's not on the stand here. You're not the prosecuting attorney here evaluating God and judging God according to whatever you think fairness and justice is. Get that out of your mind. What should rock your world and set you free is not, um, is not who it leaves out, but the fact that he let you in. 
the fact that he let me in. God only loves bad, weak people because bad and weak people are all that there are. And so as I said earlier, he's a, he's a bottom dweller. God is a bottom dweller. He meets us on the floor of our filth and loves us into life. That's what Paul wants to communicate here about the sweet, sovereign nature of God's grace. He's a bottom dweller. Grace always runs downhill. It meets us at the bottom. The whole gospel can be summed up by saying that God gave us his best, Jesus. While we were at our worst, the gospel is a massive miscarriage of what we believe to be just. An innocent is punished, and the guilty get off scot-free. A massive miscarriage of justice. Antithetical, counterintuitive to anything, everything we've ever heard. So let me just conclude with this, um, and we'll dive in even more so next week. Um, because all good theology, as I tell people, all good theology begins with Romans chapter 9, verse 20. You want to be a good theologian, a theologian of the cross? Letting God be God? All good theology begins in Romans, verse nine, Romans 9, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Because Paul anticipates in verse 18 a very natural question that probably goes through all of our minds when we hear everything he has said up until that point. We go, okay, wait, so how can God hold me accountable um, if he's already made the choice? Who, does, who hasn't asked that question? Philosophers and theologians have been asking that question for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Paul could have waxed eloquent. I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but I am. Paul could have waxed eloquent. You know, he's smart. Great theologian, great philosopher, he could have waxed eloquent and given them some deep, profound, mysterious answer. And he doesn't. All he says is, who do you think you are to even ask the question? It's amazing. It's the kind of thing that flattens us. And flat, being flattened is a precursor to being free. God's whole goal is to set you free. His whole goal is to set us free. That's what Jesus said he came to do, to set the captives free. Well, next week we'll dive into that deeper, but you may have, let me just conclude with this, you may have um, seen in the news yesterday that Donald Sterling, who's the owner of the LA Clippers, um, you know, the NBA basketball team, uh, he was recorded saying some pretty racist stuff. And everyone was weighing in on what they thought. I mean, if you're on Twitter, it's just like, I mean, everyone was weighing in. Everyone, TV, everyone was weighing in on what they thought, voicing disgust. And what he said was disgusting. But everyone was voicing their opinion. Um, and one guy said this. He said, if it's so hard to get rid of an embarrassing owner, the vetting process better become more airtight. That's what he said. Imagine Jesus saying that. To avoid embarrassment, I better have an airtight vetting process. Jesus doesn't vet. It's the beauty of the gospel. He comes and saves and unconditionally loves embarrassments like us. 
That's what he's in the business of doing. He loves to do that because he's a bottom dweller. Robert Capon says it so well. Uh, this is one of my favorite lines from Robert Capon, who's a writer who's now dead. Um, when he said, when he wrote, life under grace is the life of a cripple on an escalator. I love that picture. I love it. I mean, a, not just someone standing on it, a cripple on an escalator who can't move. The life of grace is just, it, you're being propelled. You're being taken up. You're not walking. You're being taken. You're not running or skipping. You're being carried. That's, that's the rescuing grace of God. Jesus revealed God's economy and how God works from the opposite, how God works from the bottom, because Jesus came in weakness, not strength. He came to die, not kill. He came to give, not to take. He came to serve, not to be served. And by coming in weakness, God defined victory in terms of giving, not taking, self-sacrifice, not self-protection, going to the back, not getting to the front. Jesus embodies God's economy the way God does things. At the cross, God showed that the deepest win comes in the form of loss, that the truest power comes in the form of service, that the realest riches come in the form of giving everything away because Jesus, who possessed everything, became nothing so that we who had nothing could possess everything. And if that doesn't enlarge your heart and make you walk out of here not only feeling free, and the pressure's off, and knowing, reveling in the rescue of God that you, you cannot shake away from his love and his affection because it was set on you before time. And God always finishes what he starts. And embodied in the beautiful words of Jesus that I literally have tattooed on my arm in Greek, tetelestai. Okay, you want to see it after church? Come look at it. It is finished. Why? Because I need to be reminded when I'm eating. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Okay. Words that we love here. I mean, when Jesus said it is finished, he secured rescue for sinners forever.